Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. This upcoming concert season will be all about the boots, and Tecovis is your stop for the best in Western style. Tecovis has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring and summer, including men's and women's boots, apparel, hats, bags, and more. All Tecovis boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition with timeless styles that are always on trend. And Tecovis has first wear comfort with little to no break-in period. It's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style. Stop by your local Tacova store, have a complimentary drink or two, that's WCB style, and shop new styles. The smell of fresh leather and friendly staff are at your service. Many stores even have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. And with regular live music and events, there's no in-store experience like it. If you can't make it into a store, just visit tecovas.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. They offer free shipping on all boots, as well as free returns and exchanges, and ship right to your door. Go to tecovis.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today. Welcome to the Whitetail Legacy Podcast. Tomorrow is opening day. This morning, then I have a great hunt. Deer didn't move like usual. We just got set up in the middle of this bedding thicket. Oh, and saving this spot from the rut. It's a nice, I think it's a nice buck. <laughs> It's a 170. That was money. I think it's down right over there. 10 yards. Woo! Whitetail Legacy Podcast. Bringing you back to the hunt and leaving a legacy. Baller rut. Welcome to the Whitetail Legacy Podcast. Still on the airwaves. Unbelievable, but we're still here and we're still sending it. And we are sending a whitetail knowledge episode right into your ear holes on a wednesday on a wednesday prime rib day <laughs> um it's like prime rib bush light day wednesday i was gonna say i don't even know if any place serves prime rib on a wednesday they should it's I just mean, whitetail legacy yeah. sending prime ribs out yeah yep, exactly right. um we have <laughs> justin help me out bro fiskajon fiskajon yeah justin gary fiskajon on the show the Dude is a complete stud at killing whitetails, and a humble stud at that. Yeah, I mean, very humble guy. Um, not only whitetails, killing antelope, yeah. elk, elk, mule deer. mule deer, turkeys. I know. I've seen that guy put out more turkeys than I've probably done in my whole life. Yeah, just uh, just an epic guy, um, hunting North Dakota, Montana, Iowa, traveling out of state, getting it done. Uh, only killed one buck on private, all public ground kills. We go into a lot of detail on this of why he thinks he's successful, some tactics he's do does, some uh, stories that he uses the tactics in. So uh, you guys are really going to enjoy this episode. Let's get into the people that make this possible, and we'll get right into it. Um, what do you got? What do you got wrote down there? 
Oh, you got it. You got it all, bro. You are so prepared hey, right hey. now. <laughs> I'll let you run it off. Let's start off with a title sponsor, the VIP Veteran Broadhead. <laughs> well, in order for me to start off, I'm just going to kick it right back to you. Um, you're the one that's had some experience with the Veteran Broadhead in um, shooting turkeys. Yeah, I've had some good experience with that. Um, killed two turkeys with the Veteran Broadhead. To both complete passers, one I lost my arrow, um, just went right through. That's one thing that I wasn't getting with other mechanicals on turkeys because those feathers are catching up on on everything and slowing everything down. Um, the veteran I also like on turkeys that you know the kill zone's pretty small, and on with the veteran you have that you know over two inch cut and uh, gives you that extra you know instead Oof. of to shooting a one inch fixed blade gives you that extra width to really get in there and do some damage and the variable cutting width to get a pass through. Yeah. That's, that's why I'm getting the pass throughs on these turkeys. So, um, uh, I'm excited to possibly try it. I don't know. We'll see. I'm still on the fence. I was say you got a week, brother. I know I'm still on the fence. Like I said, wife gets one down, then, then it'd be different. If we didn't need the content, it would be different. Yeah. Unless, unless people want to see, uh, me miss a turkey with the, if that's content, then, uh, I mean, I could use a bow. I mean, <laughs> so, uh, I was like, we've got that on lock. Yeah. We, I can do that all day. Um, but yeah, let's get into the VIP veteran broadhead shout out. The VIP veteran broadhead shout out this week is Jeremy Snyder. He was a part of the U S army 11 B infantry men graduated from sniper and ranger schools he served 10 years from 2014 to 2000 or 2004 to 2014, deployed to Iraq three times and Afghanistan four times. Um, there's been many days where this guy's motivated uh, me with a quote. I'm sure uh, Cody will because I, yeah. I know you've seen it. So um, from a Facebook group that we're in. So uh, keep that up. And, you know, Jeremy, we can't appreciate you. You know, it seems like you've been across the seas many times. So. Uh, we know that, that wasn't easy on you and your family, and uh, we appreciate you doing that for us, the VIP family, and Matt and Cindy appreciate that, man. Yeah, let's get into. No, excuse me, I, <laughs> I just took a took a drink of Bush Light and went down the wrong pipe. <laughs> about died. Um, let's get into ECW calls. Um, season been in. Yeah, turkey hunting here. Uh, we're not going to release anything though. No, no, we're saving that. For the bank. We're saving it. We're banking it. So you guys don't even know what we've done. But it's been epic. Everything we do is epic. <laughs> epic it's probably chaos. been yeah, it's probably been utter chaos, but somehow magically we've got something accomplished. I'm not really sure how. Just pretty much on pure effort and determination not to stop doing dumb stuff <laughs> right. to get it done. And Cody just keeps consistently telling me I don't need sleep. Yeah. You know, you I'll put that out there. You you don't you need it. A lot less sleep than you think you do. <laughs> right. Have three kids, try to run a podcast, work full-time on the road, and uh, kill stuff. Then, you, then you're no. <laughs> ECW calls. If you <laughs> oh, yeah. have... Yeah, we're doing an ECW call. Yeah, ECW calls. Go ahead. If you have broken your glass uh, throughout the year or going to gonna break your glass, um, Jeff can repair that glass for a small fee. And, um, you know, we, you can custom uh, engrave anything you want in it, it too. That too. So, you know, um, everybody's got that call. They just kind of fist their hand. They like the way, you know, it strokes. 
So, if you bought a if you bought a hundred and twenty dollar call and oh, broke a dude, glass, don't even go there. You could uh, get it replaced by him. So that's pretty epic. Don't even go there. <laughs> Scentlock, um, I had a guy uh, message me on Facebook and ask if we were going to run the B one series this year, mm. and I said I put some consideration to it. Badass digital camo pattern, but the OG real G or O O tree real G is just too awesome. So I'm going to run it again. That's O tree real tree. Yeah, yeah, but uh, I don't know what intro I put in this one. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but uh, <laughs> every time I say it, yeah, but uh, I told him that I was gonna run, you know, the the real tree OG, and uh, he's really interested in the B one series, and uh, I, you know, I got to tell him I got to see it at ATA and get my hands on it, and it's a it's a really nice product, and it might be something that we do in the future, but this year yeah. we're gonna continue to run the the tactic suit just because we loved them so much last year for sure. And uh, Ingram's outdoor obsession. What do you got? What do you got wrote down there? Anything? I forgot. I mean, <laughs> I forgot. I put. Don't forget. Um, he's doing all the turkey fan mounts, and um, you know, he's going to help us with our Indian mount. Yeah. So um, the Indian mounts can be pretty epic. We'll be able to showcase that too. We're we're doing a lot of unique stuff with with Ingram. I was going to say, if you guys are listening to us, and you know, with the Mister Freeze mount. With my deer mount, um, we got this idea for these turkey mounts. So Ingram's fully capable of doing it. If you have an abstract idea that you want done. And he actually enjoys the challenge. For sure. You know, nobody wants to just do the same thing every day at work. And, you know, he's he's no different. He wants to change it up here again and tackle a a new mount. Yep, for sure. And uh, one thing I really liked about the Mr. Freeze... I mean, we took two or three hours just figuring out what we wanted to do, and he was right there with me every step of the way, detailed. So he will take the time to really make that mount a very, as special as possible and, and make you 100% satisfied. Yeah, so, as much as you want him to nail it, he wants to nail it that much more yeah, for you. So Yeah, for sure. All right, that's it. We hope you guys enjoy this episode. This is a banger of a Whitetail Knowledge episode, and uh, make sure and check out this guy's uh, social after you get done, listen to this and check out Sick for the Hunt where some most of his stuff or all of his stuff is yeah. going to premiere. So, yep. All right, guys. Go. Here we go. All right, guys. We got Justin Gary Fiskajon on. Uh, probably the most badass name of somebody we've had on this podcast. So welcome, man. Thank you. I appreciate it. And I, I take that honor with a lot of pride. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, you have had a lot of success as a hunter. Um, before we get into that, man, you know, let us know where you're kind of located at and uh, what you do for a living. Yeah, uh, I guess where I'm living now is I live on the western part of North Dakota and I'm a stone's throw from Montana, which for the outdoor opportunities is pretty incredible because I get, you know, every single year I get a bow tail for North Dakota and that allows me to, to kill a whitetail or a mule deer. Um, I generally get at least one turkey tag every spring. You know, this year I, I, I was able to get two. Um, we have pretty good waterfowl hunting, something that I'm not really into. The, the coyote hunting is very good. So we have a lot of opportunities here in North Dakota and then jump right across the border. And Montana has a ton of hunting opportunities. I mean, on a consistent basis for the last, I would say, six or seven years, I have, I've killed a deer over there every year, I believe. And 
I, I usually put in for the deer out combo. So I was lucky enough to draw kind of a special area for archery a few years back and shot a really nice bull um, along Fort Peck out there. Antelope, something that I just started getting into here the last couple of years. So it's another one of those things I, I put in for the, the archery only for antelope in Montana. And I've been successful in drawing that every year I've put in. Um, so I've been able to take a couple buddies out with me and we've killed a couple nice antelope and, uh, turkeys or two tags over the counter. So, I mean, I live in a spot to where I'm an hour drive from hunting a lot of different critters and yeah, Montana is pretty expensive as a non-resident, but when you, when you justify it compared to what you would be paying an outfitter to go to another state to hunt deer, turkeys, whatever, it's actually ends up being pretty cheap. So location wise, I cannot complain. I mean, there's a there's thousands and thousands of acres of public ground around here, which is kind of my thing. Um, I think I've only ever killed one deer that wasn't on public ground. And that was on a hunt I went on in Kansas back in, I want to say 2011. I went with an outfitter down there and killed a pretty nice buck the first morning I was there. Uh, but other than that, there's just so much public ground around here that if a guy puts in the time and the effort, um, the deer are there. I mean, the quality is there. Uh, we, we have been hit with blue tongue and chronic wasting disease off and on. And I'm a little, little worried this year with the amount of flooding that we have in our area. If we're going to see that blue tongue kind of spike up again with all the, the low lying water and stuff that we're going to have left over after everything drains out. But that remains to be seen. But the quality of the deer in this area along the, the Missouri and the Yellowstone rivers has always been very good. I mean, there's, we don't have the Midwest Booner type deer out here, but um, if you can if you can arrow a deer or shoot a deer that's 150 plus out here, that's doing something pretty special. And between me and a couple of my buddies that that, that hunt pretty hard, we've killed a few deer in the 160s and a couple that were over 170 gross score, obviously. And you know that's something that we're pretty proud of because that's kind of the the top of the food chain as far as what our genetics are capable of producing in in this area from what we've seen but as far as what i do for work right now i work as a plant operator at a natural gas plant and the schedule there is really nice because i used to work at a sporting goods store i used to be the the lead bow tech i worked on bows i sold bows guns did all that type of stuff and kind of was like living the dream you know you got to talk hunting and be around hunting all day long and i loved it but I was kind of limited to the amount of days off that I got and this job opportunity came up and as a plant operator, the shifts are long, but I work a, a week of day shifts and then I have a, a whole week off. Then I work a week of night shifts and have a whole week off. So seven days off at a time. And nice. then, the, then the ability, you know, once or twice a year to take a whole shift off in, in vacation basically would let me hunt the whole month of November if that's what I chose to do. And obviously that's prime time out here uh, for North Dakota and Montana. As far as our rut goes, it usually peaks in the middle or end of November. So if that's what I want to do, I can put my time off in there and, and have 21 straight days to do nothing but chase white hills. <laughs> and, that's epic, man. I was, I think we're going to put all our vacation together and maybe have, uh, <laughs> 15 or 16 in a row yeah. <laughs> with yeah. the weekends. Yeah. <laughs> well, everybody thinks that it sounds really cool and fun, but I tell you what, on, on day 21, you're, you're wanting to go back to work at that. <laughs> oh, <point>. yeah, <laughs> <right>. <laughs> Could only imagine. So, but, 
Um, I want to say that real quick. Okay. So, like, guys like you that are hidden and unknown that are just absolute studs at what you guys do, that's who we want on this show. So, we really appreciate you coming on. I just want to get that out of you. I know we're taking up yeah, some time for just a couple of Midwest boys that don't know anything about Montana hunting. But uh, we want to learn, and I appreciate you coming on. And, homie, go ahead. Um, You know, I, I come across to you probably early last spring. And I was able to, you know, see some of your hunts, uh, some of your turkey hunts. How many turkeys did you get knocked down last year? Oh, shoot. Um, I mean, it just seemed like a lot. (laughs) Last year was, I think last year was only three, but the year before when you probably seen those videos, it would have been been five that year with my bow. So five with my bow two years ago and three with my bow last year. And this year I'll actually be hunting three states and I have two tags in each state. So I have six tags to try to fill this year and we'll see how that goes. I'd really like to uh, try to stick one with my recurve. I haven't got a chance to kill anything with that yet. So I got a stalker stick bow that I'd, I'd really like to arrow a turkey with. So that might slow me down. I'm getting all my tags filled. But if I could kill one with that, I'd be pretty pumped. Yeah, that would be super cool. But I, I guess as far as the turkey end of things goes, and I know turkey's kind of a, a hit and miss topic. Some guys are really into it. Some guys, it's whatever. But to me, I love it. I mean, it's the first real hunt of the year as far as I'm concerned, getting me out of this cabin fever. And, you know, shed hunting's fun and everything, but winter's a long winter up here, and I'm just ready to get out and hunt something and they're so vocal and it's so much fun to be around them and hunt them and i i really enjoy it so it's it's definitely one of the things that i really look forward to and um we're gonna try to me and a buddy of mine are gonna try to get down to south dakota here in the next week or two and we both have two tags apiece down there to try to get on some miriams which is which is one of my goals this year i've shot some some cream tip feathered birds around here but i want a true blue miriams for sure so we're hoping to get down there and get that done and then i'll fit in north dakota and montana when i can but i'm sure you guys know i did like i said i did a little looking around in your guys's profiles too that i got a a son who's you know a year and two months old now so that definitely cuts into the hunting time and it makes it a lot harder to to be away and 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 go do that sort of things when you got a little one back at home so this last year was definitely kind of a an eye opener for me as far as not even wanting to go hunting as much. I know that kind of sounds weird, but you know, when I was when I'd have a bad hunt, I almost felt guilty that, you know, oh, I could have spent that time, you know, home with my little guy and and that's kind of the the, the battle that that I fought the, this last year was trying to balance, you know, yeah, getting out there and trying to, you know, get video kills and do what I need to do for sick for the hunt. But at the same time, I never wanted it to feel like I was choosing that over my son because that's something that, that I just couldn't ever do. So, yeah. Um, if you really want, uh, an eye opener, just have a baby during the rut. (laughs) (laughs) I had a baby in November. So, uh, I know, I know a little bit how you feel there. Um, so are you, with your location there, is that how you're able to hunt the variety of animals that you do? Yeah, I'd, I'd say that's 99% of it. Like I said, I've, 
I ventured out a little bit, you know, I hunted South Dakota for turkeys a couple years ago, uh, Kansas a few times for turkeys, once for deer. And then last year was the first year that I ever hunted Iowa. But other than that, 99% of what I do is on either side of the border, uh, North Dakota and Montana. And there's some spots that I hunt that depending on what side of the border they, they fell and died on, you know, as long as I had a tag for bull, <laughs> I mean, you're literally hunting right on the border. So, I mean, I'm so close to the border of Montana and their, their non-resident opportunities are so great. They're expensive, but I mean, if you put in your application, generally you're going to draw a general big game combo, which is deer and elk. And with that includes fishing and, and waterfowl and everything else, which like I said, I really, besides deer, elk and coyote, I don't do anything much else besides paddlefish over there. And that's just because... Montana actually lets you harvest the paddlefish with archery equipment where North Dakota doesn't. So we've been able to bow fish for paddlefish just right along the edge of the river over there the last seven or eight years and been successful every year doing it. And that's, that's kind of a riot there. You know, that's right at the kind of the tail end of Turkey season. So another good way to get out there and try to kill something big with your bow. And it's, it's a blast. Yeah, I got. I said I talked a big game last year on the show about going bow fishing, but I got to get my ass in gear. Never went and go. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, I, oh, go ahead. Uh, bow fishing, I love it. I used to shoot all the tournaments and stuff around here, but anymore, I kind of saved my vacation for for hunting, and I just haven't. My days off just haven't lined up to shoot a lot of the tournaments, but. The one thing that I don't miss out on is is bow fishing for paddlefish, and I got a buddy over in the Sydney area that's kind of been our thing. We we get out there and try to do it every year, and like I said, I think we're seven for seven or eight out of eight on me going over there to, to shoot one, and I mean, there's a lot of people that can't catch them, Ron Reel. It's not an easy thing to do, and basically, you're standing on the edge of the bank staring into chocolate milk. I mean, it's dirty, dirty water that's moving really fast. And as those fish are coming up, they'll hit these boils and it'll just push up the tip of their tail fin or the tip of their dorsal fin. And you just see just a part of the fin. You got to kind of guess where they're going and, and snap shoot. And if you hit one, you got to hold on because, I mean, those things get up over 100 pounds. And the biggest one that I shot was 85 pounds and that according to the bow fishing association of America is the world record right now, which is kind of cool, but that's obviously not the biggest one that's ever been shot with a bow. It's just under their guidelines. And if you're a member and stuff, it's the biggest mm -hmm. one that's been recorded under them. And that was kind of our goal that year is the Montana bow fishing association of America record was I think 55 pounds. And we thought we had a pretty good idea with some of the fish that had been caught that we could break it. And as soon as I landed that fish, me and my buddy looked at each other and was like, oh, yeah, that's state record for sure. And it ended up beating the world record by half a pound. And we were kind of looking at each other like, holy crap, that never <laughs> happened, you know. So that was pretty neat. But, yeah, I mean, I just can't say enough about the place that I live being so close to the border and the opportunities in both states. It's pretty incredible. Man, world record paddle fishing. Yeah. That's, that's pretty badass. You, you got it's actually, yeah. it's actually hanging behind me right now as we're talking. That's that's awesome, dude. <laughs> so, um, you know, as you said, you you're hunting Montana. You've been down to South Dakota. You just come down to Iowa. Um, yeah. You know, I'm not sure how much our listeners has traveled, but Cody and I haven't done much traveling. Cody's been down to Missouri and done some rifle hunting. 
Um, but he's been able to like stay at his, his grandma and grandpa's house as to where I've never hunted out of state. So what are some tips that you can give the listeners and Cody and I, um, for, you know, planning trips out of state, you know, as far as where you like to stay at, um, are you just strictly camping? Um, you know, are you taking all your gear? Are you being selective on gear? Uh, just kind of go into that. Well, to be honest with you, when I'm heading out on a hunt, like even Montana, if I'm going to go try to scout a new area for antelope or go out for looking for elk or do whatever that to me, as far as I'm concerned, even though I'm living right next to Montana, some of those places that I, that I want to go scout and, and hunt are, you know, five, six, seven, eight hours away. So when I'm packing up for a trip like, like that, it looks like mom and dad are sending their college kid off to college. I mean, it's just, it's not real organized and there's shit kind of stuffed in everywhere of stuff that you don't know if you're going to need it, but you're going to bring it anyways. Sounds pretty much like everything we do. (laughs) (laughs) I'm not going to lie to you guys and tell you I'm super organized. I got, I got totes and I, whatever I think I might need, I throw it all in totes and just fit them wherever and throw my sleeping bag and pillows and stuff in the back seat. And most of the time I'm lucky if I can fit another human in there, if they want to come with. Um, but I do a lot of solo trips and on my solo trips, I don't bring even a tent. Usually I'll just sleep in my pickup and it's super uncomfortable and not many people can do it, but I don't like to have to one. I, when I'm down at the end of the day, cause I'll usually get there in the middle of the night. I don't want to get out and set up a tent. I'll just recline the seat back, take a little nap and just go scouting from there so I don't have to pick up camp or anything. So it's not ideal, but I just want to get out. Say if I'm hunting or scouting antelope, I just want to be out there before it gets light out. And then as soon as it starts to get light out, I want to be able to start making tracks up and down the roads. And, you know, antelope are pretty visible. So, I mean, then I'm marking all the locations and trying to find, you know, they have a lot of what's called block management in Montana, which is, it's basically private land that, there's type one and type two uh, type one you you just sign in to the box there's a sign in box somewhere you fill out your information and you can hunt that section of block management type two is is the same type of deal except you actually have to get written permission from the landowner and there's a ton of that spread across montana which is it's really good hunting opportunities because it's you know basically private land that's open to hunting as long as you you do your homework and figure out where you got to sign in and what the rules and regulations are and, and stuff like that. And I've, I've killed a lot of critters on, on block management over there. So it's not, I don't know really how to classify that. I mean, it's, it's public accessible land, but it's private. So I don't know if you would label that public land hunting or private land hunting. I always, you know, kind of say that it's public because anybody can hunt it, Mm -hmm. but there's a ton of that over there. And so I just like to get out there and I like to cover a lot of ground and you can only do so much on the aerial map, Google maps, that sort of thing. I obviously, I, I spent a ton of time on there, Onyx maps, hunt stand, those type of mobile apps on my phone. And the Onyx is huge for when I'm out there driving around, I have that downloaded on my phone. And if it's an area that's not going to have service, then I'll download a, a big low resolution area on my phone before I get there. Because I want to know when I'm driving around, if I see antelope off to the left, I want to know, well, is that private? Is it public? Is it block management? You know, I want to figure out 
if it's stuff that I can hunt and then, you know, mark that on my GPS and, and have kind of a starting point there. So the antelope deal especially is something that I just got into. And I basically just drove all these back roads in the middle of nowhere. I didn't even see another human being. And I, you know, saw groups of antelope and then I found, you know, where I thought they would be watering and, and set up blinds about a week before season started and, and come back and they were used to the blinds. And, you know, I got, I killed a pretty nice antelope, had a couple buddies kill nice antelope. And it's just one of them things that, you just had to get out there and put in the legwork and figure out where they were at. And then once you found that out, the, the beauty of this spot is it's literally in the middle of nowhere. So we're besides the, the fish and game who drove in there to put the sign in sheets of the block management sign in box. I think we were the only set of tracks out there. So, I mean, those are the type of spots that I look for. I want spots where maybe they're not real easy to get to. They're off the beaten path, but if there's animals there and there's not a whole lot of other hunting pressure, that's a win-win for me. You know, that's, that's the type of stuff that I look for. But as far as hunting out of state, um, the biggest things that I can, you know, give as far as tips, as far as what I've done is like I said, the Onyx apps, uh, download that it's cost you a little money, but the land ownership part of it is huge. Uh, I use hunt stand too, which is pretty similar to that. It just doesn't have all the land ownership. It has some of the icons that you can use to mark sign and tree stands, that sort of thing. I like that a little better. Um, but I, when you zoom out on some of my apps like that, it just looks like a blob because I mark everything. You know, I mark, <laughs> I mark, hey, I saw one antelope here. Hey, here's a possible water hole. I sat at work one night and I zoomed in on Google Earth on my Onyx account. And every spot where I could see a reflection where it looked like there was even a puddle of water, I was marking those. So when I got out there to hike in to look for blind setups for water holes for antelope, I had all of these already located. So I could hike out there. Sometimes there was no water there anymore. Sometimes there was a lot of water there, you know, but at least I, I wasn't just hiking around the desert kind of blind. You know, I, I had my spots marked. I went to them looked for tracks, looked for sign, looked for hair in the water, that sort of thing. And, and just kind of based it off of that. Um, the deer is a little different story. Um, I usually hunt fairly close to the home in Montana for deer along the river bottoms. It's kind of the same type of hunting that I do in North Dakota. Uh, but there has been a few times the last couple of years where I've started to go a little further West and it's more prairie type stuff. I mean, it looks like mule deer country to me and, the first few times I went out there, I thought there's no way in hell there's going to be whitetail here. And well, I ended up seeing like 170 inch whitetail run right across the gravel road in front of me at like two o'clock in the afternoon. And he just come from a stubble field and I'm looking around. I was like, there's no cover. There's no anything. Like, where is this deer living? It was just kind of an eye opener for me. So I've been spending a little more time out there the last few years and and we've killed a couple nice deer out in that country. I mean, it's definitely more of a rifle spot than it is an archery spot. But, you know, once again, just trying to find those those spots that probably get more overlooked than, you know, than other spots because it doesn't look like your prototypical whitetail habitat. But if you're out there at the right time of the day and if you're out there during the rut is the biggest key. I mean, those deer, if they're there, they're going to be on their feet and they're going to be out moving around and you'd be surprised at what what you'd see out in the middle of the prairie i know i was so that was kind of an eye-opener for me too and then the iowa deal i had a 
you know, on the sick for the hunt pro staff, I have a buddy on there that, you know, it's kind of prod me a little bit, say, Hey, you know, you need to put in for out here. You know, we have some leases and stuff. You come on, come out here and hunt on and like, okay. And I put in not knowing what my odds were, knowing nothing about it. And I drew it the first year that I put in and I was like, Holy cow is, I don't know if that's normal or not. And from my research that I've done since then, it looks like you, you shouldn't probably draw it on your first year, but your second year, you have pretty good odds. So after I found that out and, you know, I was hemming and hawing on when I could come and when it would work out and we never really had a good plan down and it was kind of a last second trip in January where it, it just worked out and I said, Hey, I can slip away for these few days. And, you know, if you guys still would have me down there and he said, yep. Uh, the only unfortunate thing is when I got down there, him and his dad both had to work and couldn't get out of work. So then, you know, hunting with them on, on their leases and stuff was kind of out the window. And that was fine with me because, I mean, they're according to them, there was a ton of public ground around there. And they had printed off a bunch of the, the public land maps. And we just kind of sat down and started going over the maps. And I was asking questions and looking for pinch points and, you know, wanted to know where the food sources were and that sort of thing since we're into January now. And they were kind of talking about some of the farms that bordered, you know, the public and, and how they had really strict management as far as the type of deer that they would shoot. And I just remember him saying the one, well, this, this guy that owns all this land that, that butts up against this little finger piece here, they don't shoot anything unless it's 180 or bigger. And so instantly I'm thinking, well, shoot, I'll shoot deers that are half that size and be tickled pink. So I was like, that's where I want to go. And I got as far up as I could and it pinched down between a, a, an open field and a creek bed. And I, it was muzzleloader, late muzzleloader. And I basically just found a tree and sat right in the middle so I could shoot 150 yards either way. I could see the sign that said end of public hunting on my left and I could see the river on my right. So anything that was going to walk through that gap, I, it was going to be in range. And it, it just, it's kind of bizarre because I'm the guy that, that ends up basically taking every single hunt down to the, to the wire. Like a lot of the deer I killed in Montana were killed the last day or last weekend. And it's a five week rifle season and a five week bow season. And to go out to Iowa, I'd never been there, never hunted it, never stepped foot on this ground. And are you guys good if I kind of get into that story a little bit right yeah, now? Yeah, go ahead. Yeah. Uh, so never stepped foot on Iowa soil before. And, you know, I'd picked out this spot the night before and I drive, you know, in the dark and get out there and get sprayed down and grab the gun and get what I thought I needed for the day. And my original plan was I was just going to still hunt through there as it was getting light out. And I basically was going through the fields into the fringe timber and back into the bedding areas the way that this layout was for where I had to come through. So I just wanted to get out to the edge of the field. If there was anything there, just kind of see what it was. And then just slowly work my way back in to see if I could catch deer filtering back to the bedding areas still on their feet. And I thought, well, I'll do that. And then once everything's kind of settled down, I'll, I'll look for a pinch point or a funnel or something, and then I'll come back and get a tree stand and, and haul it in there and get set up for the afternoon. So I didn't bring, food or water or anything and i started still hunting back through there and there's deer on their feet all over the place and i'm i get to this really skinny stretch of the public where it really starts to narrow down 
And like I said, there's kind of an open field on my left. I don't know if it was just grass or if they had some sort of hay mixed in there or what. And then the, the river that comes through there is, is at my right. And the wind's blowing right in my face. And I'd seen, you know, through the trees, I was still hunting. I could see there was a pretty nice buck out in front of me and a, and a bunch of does. So I just let them kind of work their way back up into the private. And I got right in the middle of that pinch point And I was up on kind of a little shelf. And I just sat down and I thought, man, well, all those deer worked up in there. I assume that they're going to come working back. And it's, I, I want to say it's 11 o'clock in the afternoon at this point. I was like, well, I'm just going to hang out here for the rest of the day. And I screwed in a bow holder. So I had a rest and I just leaned up against like three trees and got all my stuff ready. You know, my reloading stuff for the muzzleloader, got everything set up, camera set up, ready to rock and roll. And I was like, oh, I'm kind of tired. So I lean up against this tree and I start taking a little snooze. And I wake up like half an hour later and I look over and there's like three deer in the field off to my left already. I mean, it's like noon and they're just walking around eating in the middle of the day. And I was like, this is really bizarre. You know, this deer back home don't get on their feet until there's about five minutes of light. Left. <laughs> you know, and I'm just thinking this is super strange. And I was like, this must be just kind of an anomaly. So I went back and I took another little nap. And this time I wake up to like hooves like i can hear this deer walking like it's literally within 10 yards and i don't know if he saw me pick my head up or what but he turned and ran and i didn't know what it was all i knew was that i was about to get trampled by a deer and i thought well maybe at this point because i'm i'm sitting on there was nowhere i could sit where there wasn't trails through this stuff so i was kind of hoping that that wouldn't happen that they would be taking the trails that basically went through me and that's that's what that deer was doing so i was like well crap that's that's not good the deer didn't blow or anything so i thought well maybe i'm all right uh, you know it's one o'clock at this point and we got four or five hours of light left i thought i guess since the deer are moving already i should probably be awake now so i got set up got the gun ready and and just kind of sitting there and i'm watching these deer come out into the field and some of them are coming out on the other side of the public end of public hunting sign and i couldn't have shot them anyways and there's a couple little bucks out there. One of the ones was one that I saw that morning, a massive three and a half year old deer looked like a nice buck. And I'm sitting here watching him in the binoculars. Then all of a sudden I, I hear like a twig break behind me. So I drop my binos and I look over my shoulder and basically walking directly behind me at about eight yards is this little buck. And I'm thinking, shit what do I do now? Like I'm on the ground. He's right there. He's walking by me and out of my peripherals, I can see off to my left. Here's a big deer walking straight at me. And I'm like, Oh, well, I don't have my gun up. I reached down and I got my camera turned on and I kind of just swung the camera and I can't tell if I'm recording where that big buck is at or what. I can't see my viewfinder. I can't move. And the little buck turns and, and runs past me. I don't know if he winded me or what, but he takes off. And I'm thinking I'm kind of screwed now. I'm sitting there frozen, not knowing if my camera's even pointed at this deer. And he's standing about 25 yards away up on this high spot, just kind of flicking his ears and turning his head side to side like a big deer will do. You know, when they, they kind of sense something's not right, he wasn't spooked yet but he just knew something didn't feel quite right and he was on the trail that was going to come right through me so a few minutes go by and finally he turns his head 
and he starts walking broadside like he's cutting across to go out into the field, which is perfect for me. But I get on him with the camera, I'm following him, and I pick up my gun kind of quick as his head goes behind a tree. And he caught that movement and he took off running. And I was freaking out. So I'm trying to get the camera on, I'm trying to get the gun on him. And he runs out to the edge of this field now and he he's behind some big cottonwoods. And luckily I went over there and, and cleared out a shooting lane before I sat down. And I I just got the camera in the shooting lane and I thought, well, as soon as he gets there, I'm it's then or never. So he walks into that shooting lane and I macked at him and I don't know why or how, but he stopped. And he's quarter and hard away. I pull the trigger and smoke fills the air and I had no idea if I hit him or what the heck happened. Once the smoke starts clearing a little bit, I see this deer kind of stumbling around. So I get my binos up and I I'm looking at it and I'm like, Holy shit. I didn't know there was a doe standing behind him. I was like, that's a doe. I just shot it. Like that doe is dying right there. <laughs> I, I can't see the buck. I'm stunned. It just happened so fast. I didn't even see another deer behind him. I pulled the trigger and smoke went everywhere. And now there's a doe that's dying. And I was like, well, I guess it's a good thing I have a doe tag. But I really was just like perplexed. Like I, that, the thought of him not having his horns anymore never crossed my mind. I'm just thinking like, shit, what just happened? You know, like I couldn't figure it out in my head. So I'm worried about, you know, getting another load in now because this doe is still kind of dragging around, isn't completely dead yet. And I want to finish her off and I get that thing loaded back up and I run across the creek. And as I'm running over to where this doe is, I trip across his horns laying in the field. And I'm like, you gotta be kidding me. As soon as he hits the ground, both of his horns popped off. So the whirlwind of emotions in that couple minute stretch from not knowing if I'm going to get a shot. Uh, oh, he saw me, busted me, probably really not going to get a shot. Got him to stop, <laughs> pull the trigger, cloud of smoke. Doe is stumbling around and dying. Oh, wait, no, it's not the doe. It's my buck. <laughs> and I was just like, it was just madness. And I'm by myself, obviously, experiencing all this. And uh, I, got, I got another bullet in him. He was... He was dead. I mean, the, the bullet ended up going right in front of his back legs uh, and went all the way up into that offside shoulder. So, I mean, it went through everything. I don't know how he got as far as he did. But in slow motion in the video, through the smoke, you can see when he when he gets hit, he drops. And he tries to start getting back up, but his legs don't work. So, it wasn't when he hit the ground initially. He tries to get back up. And when he realizes his legs don't work, his head comes down and his chin basically just smacks the ground flat and you just see both horns pop off. I mean, it's and I I've heard of that happening before, but until it happens to you, I, and I knew that it was a, there was a chance that it could happen going out there that late, but just in the heat of the moment and the smoke cloud was perfect to just mask everything that happened. And you see this doe stumbling and tipping over I mean, it's comical to me to look back on it now, but at the time I was like crap in my pants. I was like, what just happened? So it was pretty incredible. And he like said, uh, the buddy of mine that that's from out there, um, he ended up coming back in there to help me get him out. And him and his dad were both like, yeah, you could probably kill a deer like this every year because 
around here, nobody hunts this far back in. I mean, I think I ended up being a little over a mile and a half in from the, from the truck is where I shot the deer. And to me back here, I'm consistently two miles from the truck or more one way, uh, packing my gear and everything back in there to hunt to get away from, you know, a lot of the other hunting pressure. So to me, I mean, a mile and a half, I was like, shoot, that ain't that bad. And, you know, I cut him up, quartered him out and packed a, the whole deer out on my back and my backpack. And my one buddy took the, the two sheds, I guess you would call them. And <laughs> the other guy took the, the muzzle loader, but I mean, the entire deer was on my back and just hiked them the mile and a half out of there. And they're like, yeah, no way anybody's putting in that much work around here. And to me, that just sounds bizarre because it's what I'm used to around here. Mm -hmm. So if that's the case out there that nobody wants to hunt more than 500 yards off the road and you have Iowa caliber deer, like that's something that I want to get my hands on as much as I can. Cause I don't have no problem going back that far in. I, I enjoy it. You know, I, I feel, you know, more grateful for a successful hunt when, you know, you worked a little harder for it and, the only thing bad about that hunt is I killed him on the the very first day. And I just, you know, that just doesn't happen to me. You know, normally I, I really, really appreciate the deer that I do kill because it's such a grind to get there. And this one just seemed like it almost came a little too easy. And I, I've tempered my expectations for the next time I do get out there. So I don't expect it to happen again, but I'm sure grateful that, it worked out the way that it did this time because it made for a pretty fun hunt. Yeah. Epic story too, man. Right. I mean, the first set in Iowa, you got deer all over you falling asleep, waking up and then you <laughs> shoot a giant, you know, and then it drops its antlers and you think you shot a doe and that's, that's it, insane. It had a little bit of everything in that hunt. And kind of one of the funny parts is I took out my little, uh, point of view camera at one point when I was leaning up against the tree before I took a nap and I'm eating like the one Kit Kat bar snack size Kit Kat bar that I had. And I was rationing my water bottle cause I had like half a bottle of water when I started. So I basically spent the entire day out there from sun up until well after sundown on half a bottle of water and a couple snack size Kit Kat bars. And then to, to have to pack that entire deer all the way back to the truck in the dark. I, uh, I'm not a very big dude, but I tell you what, by the time that we were down and back to the house, I think I ate three of my normal rations. I, <laughs> yeah. was, I was pretty hungry, but no, it's, it's little things like that, that I, that I think are kind of cool. And I've always prided myself on hunting different than everybody else. And that time of the year, I just don't think that there's a lot of guys, you know, in the first week of January that are, that are going to just sit in the woods and just be there all day. You know, a lot of guys don't have the patience for it and they think, well, the rut's over. They're not going to be moving. And I couldn't believe there wasn't an hour of the day that I didn't see deer on their feet. I mean, it was all day long and it just kind of boggled my mind. But I've that's always been kind of my niche is, um, especially back here on public ground, I have pretty lightweight tree stand set up and sticks. And if I ever sit the same tree twice in a row, it's a miracle. I mean, my... My kind of my personal motto is your first sit's your best sit. So to me, I don't know why you wouldn't want to have as many first sits as you can. And I've killed some of my biggest deer doing that. And a lot of that is the results of prior year scouting. 
you know, I, I always like to tell people that I like to get in and just really screw up a spot. Cause if it's a spot that I'm just starting to hunt, like if it's a public chunk that I've never been in before, I want to get in there and just basically destroy it for that year. I want to get in there and I want to see where the sign's at. I want to see, I want to jump the deer out of their bedding to know where they're bedding at. I want to, you know, I want to see pinch points. I want to see trees that I can hunt. I want to see observation, you know, mark trees that I could hunt for observation stands. And that's kind of how I grew up hunting around here. And especially when there wasn't a lot of hunting pressure and before trail cameras got real huge is I would literally just go in and just walk all over the place. Like I wasn't shed hunting, I was scouting. And I just wanted to to kind of screw it up because a mature deer, when you're running around in his bedroom like that, isn't going to be too fond of it. So that year you might not have any results, but the following years after that, I knew it so well. And I had all my spots marked, well, hey, this is a spot that I think would be a really good observation stand to get high enough and have a good wind to be able to see a multitude of trails to try to pick out where a certain buck is coming through you know and trail cameras are great but i mean you guys know as well as i do that when you're running trail cameras especially if you're checking them often you're getting a ton of scent in where you want the deer to be and public land deer out here they don't play that game i mean it's if you're in there checking your cameras all the time you're not going to kill that big deer you might get plenty of pictures of them and push them to be nocturnal but you're most likely not going to kill them until the rut so my strategy has always been to scout from afar. So early season, I'm scouting food sources. I'm hanging stands high where I can see a long ways down meadows. And I want to do non-intrusive scouting, I guess. And if I do run trail cameras, I'll hang them out on the fringe. You know, the fringe is what I like to call basically the edge of the woods before you get back into the woods where they bed and browse and do everything else. I want to hang them along there so I'm not intruding on them. And then I'll leave them for a few months before I even check them. Because I don't want to get my scent in there more than I have to. Um, that's one of my strategies. And then observation stands to me is, have always been huge. And what I mean by that is I want to find a, a spot where I can get high enough into a tree where I can see several openings. I can see a ton of different trails. And I may not kill something out of there, but if I can sit there once or twice and get an idea for where the deer are coming from, where they're going, you know, why they're doing what they're doing. Then when I make that move to go to the trail that they're using, or I think they're using based off of what I've seen, I can make that move and try to capitalize the first sit. And the first sit to me doesn't necessarily mean that it's just the first time you sit that tree either. To me, a first sit is that's the first time you're even there. Mm -hmm. I killed a, one of my best bow deer a few years ago in Montana. I was sitting observation stands and I'd seen what looked like to be a pretty good buck come through this area. So what I did is after he worked through, I kind of figured where the tree was that he, you know, that was something I could make work. So I marked that on my, on my phone and I never stepped foot in there until the next morning. I went in there several hour, hours before it even got light out. And I hung this stand in the dark with my headlamp and, and sat in that tree and he came through and I, I think he ended up being like 172 inch deer on public land. And that was the first time I'd ever stepped foot in there. So they'd never been able to smell human, nothing. I mean, my very first sit was the morning I hung that stand 
in the dark and a couple hours later he worked through with a couple other bucks and they had no clue that a human had ever been there and that's been my biggest strategy for killing for killing big deer is the more first sits the better sit your observation stands try to figure out what they're doing and when you do make your move make sure the wind is right and make sure you, you get in there before if you're hunting in the evening get in there super early in the afternoon hang your set if you're hunting in the morning if you can do it safely obviously hang that stand that same morning a few hours early and that's that's been huge for me i know it's a pain in the ass and a lot of guys don't like putting in that extra work and hanging stands in the dark sure is safe easy or fun but for me it's been a really really good strategy that's and that's for basically for early season mid-season all the way up till a rut and the rut what i usually like to do is camp out in the bedding area i'll find pinch points in a bedding area where i know bucks are cruising looking for does on the downwind side get as high as i feel comfortable in that tree so my scent kind of carries over the bedding area before it starts dropping down and if, you, if you're right in the middle of the bedding area the bucks just come to you and i found a few good spots around here along the river locations like that and all day sits i mean i've killed some of my nicer deer in the middle of the day and you guys have heard the same thing you know 10 and 2 rule for for big deer getting killed a, a ton of big deer get killed between 10 and 2 during the rut and still a lot of people out here they're sitting at home 10 and 2 they're not sitting in a tree stand and i realized the end of november when it's 30 mile an hour winds and the real feel is about negative 20 30 degrees isn't a whole lot of fun to be in a tree then but that's all right because the deer are on their feet <laughs> i feel yeah. like i feel like a lot of that's you know people plan on doing that but then they don't see any deer in the morning and they're like well they're just not moving yeah but yeah. you know and my what i've seen is sometimes you don't see movement till 10 o'clock or nine o'clock you know and it's easy to it's easy to play that mental battle with yourself and i've been there before too obviously with as much as i like moving stands and setups i'm doing it basically every day when i'm hunting i mean i i bet you if i hunt if i hunted 150 days in a year i'd probably been in over 140 trees i mean i don't ever sit the same tree twice and the only stands that i do are ones that i have in the bedding areas come rut i'll I'll stick it out a couple days in a row in one of those spots if I feel like there's a big buck in the area that that's going to work through at some point. But other than that, I'm constantly moving. And yeah, I'm the same way. If I'm sitting in that stand and it's a few hours into light and I haven't even seen a deer yet, I'm thinking, man, this would be a good time to get down and move this to another spot. There's not in here. And especially when you're by yourself, you're playing that mental game and try to talk yourself out of it. But more often than not, like I've sat all day and not seen a whole lot of deer. And then four o'clock in the afternoon, here comes the one that you want. And you, you kill him at four o'clock in the afternoon when you've been out there for 10 hours already, you know, so it does pay off, but it's, it's a mental grind more than anything. Sitting in a stand that long and not seeing movement is not something a whole lot of people can do. Yeah, for sure. I, I really like your style of hunting and I feel like that's something that I lack on. You know what I mean? I if like if I if I have a good stand that's been good in the past, I just like, you know, I'll hunt it five times. But I've been successful on that fifth hunt, you know what I mean? So yeah. but 
I feel like on public, like we have some pretty decent public close to us that we could hunt a lot more and we could do that because we have the option to move stands so much. When you're limited on acreage, it's hard to do that. But if you're on a big public piece, we just need to hunt that public piece more mm-hmm. because I know there's giant deer on it. I've seen them. I've shot a nice one out there. You know, I've seen buddies drag giants out of there and I sure. know where they're at too. It's just me getting my ass off the private and going out there when I know what I got on the, maybe this year be easier. Cause I, you know, we know we got giants, but we don't have one like, like, like we're pinning, we we're pinning down, you know what I mean? So, but yeah, I think that's something that we'll try this year. We'll, uh, we'll try to bounce around a little more and, and make stuff happen for us instead of setting somewhere and waiting for something to happen. We'll try to make stuff happen. Well, that's definitely something that my buddy's going to give me a hard time about out here is they're like, you know, if you would, if you would go out and sit the same tree every day, all year, you'd have probably killed a big deer by now. And I was like, yeah, possibly. But I was like, that's, I'm just not my style. You know, like I, I want to be in a different tree all the time. And I, and I have a few spots, you know, like especially bedding area spots where I really like these locations for when rut rolls around there's almost always going to be at some point, there's going to be a, a, a big mature buck that works that area. So I know those spots I can sit and be patient and wait. And, and I've killed a couple of really nice deer doing that, but early season, like September, October, beginning of November, you're not going to tie me down to one tree. I just can't do it. I gotta, I gotta be moving. And I've hunted the same chunks of public land for several years and I still don't sit the same tree like every once in a while i'll get to a tree and i'll be you know getting everything set up and i'll see screw in holes or something and be like oh i think i sat this tree once <laughs> <laughs> and but i mean obviously for that it's it's a grind man when you're i mean it's one thing to take just the stand alone but when you're taking the stand and the sticks and screw ins and your your camera arm and your bow and your backpack and your clothes and late season when you got to bring extra clothes and your pack boots and you got to cross creeks and rivers with waders to get out there. I mean, it's, it's a grind and, and the self-filming part of it, it adds so much extra weight and just gear you have to carry that I should be the the last person that wants to move stands all the time because I got to move my stand and my camera arm and make sure everything's good and trim out shooting lanes. And I mean, it's just a, a super big hassle, but I don't know. I just really like it. And it's always been kind of my, my little motto, the more first sits you can have, the better. Cause I, I truly believe when it comes to big deer anyways, mature deer, that that's your best bet. Cause if you're, if you're getting pictures of a big deer coming through one trail and you go in there and you hunt and you don't see him, you walk down, walk out. Well, odds are that your scent's kind of lingering around there for the next 24 hours. If he comes through late that night and smells human scent and he's like, well, this don't seem right. It could push him nocturnal. It could make him not ever want to come back down that trail again, or it might not mess with him at all. But I play kind of the mental game with myself. And I, I always try to assume the worst and be like, well, I don't ever want to even step foot in there until my stands going up in the tree and I'm sitting it that morning. And if that doesn't work out, then I'm tearing it down. I'm going somewhere else. Yeah. And props to you, man. I did eight pack in hunts last year and it's like, you're like, damn when you get packed up like especially in the morning you know but i was doing a lot of like leave a stand in a tree and then take it down 
at, you know, in the middle of the day, then move it over and hang it again in the evening and not packing it out every time. Cause I was like, man, I got it in this far. So I'm just going to leave it in a tree and yeah. then, uh, I'll pull it down when I get in there. So now I got 400 yards less of carrying a tree. You know what I mean? So oh, yeah. oh, uh, I, I've done some of that too. And it's burned me a few times. Cause there was a few times where I'd like take my stand down and I'd like put it under a bush and I'd mark it. And then I'd come back and well, somebody found my bush. And I, <laughs> I feel you there. I always left mine still on the tree, still hooked up and everything locked on and then just go take it down. It was, it was more work cause I had to take it down, then hang a stand. But, uh, that's something like we want to stay off our pieces in early October and, I've killed deer on the pieces in early October, but I feel like we could make moves and stuff like that on public. And like you said, there's no, like, there's no harm in going in there and messing something up because you're learning. You know what I mean? It's really not. And the other thing about it too is, uh, and this is no slight against other hunters, but I mean, there's, there's a lot of hunters on the stuff that I hunt that they're in and out of there quite a bit, checking trail cameras or doing this and that. And I mean, they're in there not, messing it up per se but they're in there spreading scent and, and doing their own thing too so i mean these deer get pushed around once hunting season gets close and i like i said i try to stay out of the bedding area if i can once i have an area kind of figured out and my hunting strategy for public is usually i'll start at the field edge because primarily what we got out here is we got rivers and then you got woods and then you got the field the, the food source so you can start hunting right on the edge of the food source early season when they're still in velvet. And then once they start kind of switching to getting out too late, uh, not during legal shooting time, then I'll just slowly start working my way back in where some guys want to just jump back into the woods right away. Well, you do that and you know, that deer comes across your scent trail and you can push them nocturnal right away. Um, and you can't obviously control what the other guys do and you never know if a guy's been in and out of there or what the story is. But that's just how I try to play it on my end is I'll start kind of at the perimeter and slowly work my way back in early season and and try to do my best to stay out of the bedding area and let that be a safe zone until the rut. And then when the rut gets here, that's where I want to be. I want to be right in the middle of that bedding area and just sit there all day. That sounds just, kind of about like what we did last year. Yeah. yeah. You're doing all the right things, man. And it shows with you being so successful, you know, and, and every time we have someone on this podcast, the people that are incredibly successful all goes back to work. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. The more work they put in, the more time they put in stand, the more strategizing they're doing, scouting. That's how you're successful. You know, that's that that's the people that are successful. So, Yeah, and I, I think that the success is – it's usually about 90% scouting and 10% hunting. I mean, when you break it down. A lot of guys, they don't have a ton of time off. They have two days off a week and they just want to go hunt. You know, they don't get to do the scouting part of it. A lot of my sits I consider to be scouting, even during hunting season, like I said, the observation stands and stuff like that, that's more scouting than it is hunting. So when you're doing those observation stands, are you seeing bucks using a certain area or certain trail and then moving in on them like the next day and catching them doing the same thing? It depends. Uh, I want to get high enough and see a, a really big area. And if I'm seeing, you know, if I see a deer, say, two nights in a row come out of the same spot, to me, that's enough of a pattern to say, hey, I'm going to move right on top of that trail and try to kill him tomorrow. And the other thing you got to be cognizant of, obviously, is the, the weather conditions, the wind. If the wind's going to be right, you got to play the wind right and all that sort of thing. But 
I had to kind of tell myself this and get myself to know this too, is that, um, cause I, I like to move around so much that I had to tell myself that once is not a pattern. And that's something that really kind of hits home for me. Cause I would see, I was hunting this deer in 2009, 2010, a deer that I had named and stuff. And I had bow hunted them, you know, I had three years of history with this deer on public land and I was hunting them all over, had him several times under 20 yards in bow range. And one time it was just after legal shooting, right? He walked by the blind at 15 yards. One morning he was coming in with some other bucks and walking right down my shooting lane. And he's coming through these willows. He's coming right at me. And I thought, shit, I can't do anything. And he looks right up at me in the tree. And the other three bucks that he was with circled around and they come through perfect. I could have shot any one of them. And he kind of looks up at me in the tree and he's like, oh, I know that guy. Yeah, we've been playing cat and mouse for a few years. <laughs> and I have this one shooting lane through the willows and he's standing like right before it. And he looks up at me one more time and I'm on my knees on the platform of my stand at full draw. He looks up at me one last time and he jumps across the trail into the willows so I have no shot again. And then he just walks straight away. And I'm thinking, you got to be kidding me. Like, he looked at me and he's like, hey, watch this. And he jumped across the shooting lane and just went back to walking again. <laughs> I mean, the the encounters that I had with that deer, you know, he was probably, I would say, high 160s, maybe close to 170 that year. Uh, and I had him under 30 yards probably five different times. And I just, nothing went right. One night, it was broad daylight. And you come walking out into the field and... And I drew back and my buddy didn't have him on the camera. So it said, don't shoot. Well, by the time he did have him on camera, a little buck walked out and was paralleling him, but he was between me and the buck. So I had no shot. And then he got all the way out into the field and he was facing straight away. And then he caught a wind and that was that. But I mean, it was just pretty aggravating. But that deer, I was trying to hunt. Like my strategy was always to hunt on the fringe and work in. And he was coming out into this beet field. Well, he would come out here so then I would move my blind over there and get it brushed in and ready to go. And then the next night he would come out somewhere else. So then I, oh, well, I would move my blind over there and get ready. And then he would come out somewhere else. And I mean, I played that game for a month. And if I would have sat in one spot that entire month, I'd have killed him. Hmm. So that, that's when I kind of had to tell myself that once is not a pattern. Just because you've seen that deer do that one time doesn't mean that you have to move over there and, and expect him to do it again that's a good but, tip man yeah but flip side of that is too is i knew that if i sat where i'd been sitting and i saw him come out on the trail he came out on the night before and i didn't move i'd have been a hell of a lot more pissed about that than jumping around and not ever killing him because that that's the part that you know i, I would rather go down being aggressive than be passive and, and successful because i just that's just my nature but i've gotten a little better about that over the years so back to the observation stand point of view if I see a deer come out in a certain area and see him do it a couple times, then I feel comfortable making that move. I try to force myself to not do the once is a pattern type thing and see him do it one time. So I got to be there tomorrow. If I can see him do it twice, then shoot. I mean, that to me is getting to be more of something that I can rely on. And I don't want to sit here and watch him do it for a week and then have him change his pattern. If I see him doing it a couple times, I want to move in and, and kill him right away. But yeah. same thing. I'm sitting in my observation stand. I'm marking, I'm marking somewhere where I know that I can find the tree that I want to sit in. 
from a distance. I'm not going over there that morning after I get down and stomping around the trail that he was walking on or anything like that. I'm picking out as I see this deer doing this, I'm picking out a landmark to say, okay, he's came out by that bush. I need to find a stand here. This is what the wind's going to be doing. You know, where can I get set up and have an idea? So when I do go to hunt that spot, I'm either going in in the dark in the morning or I'm going in super early in the afternoon and getting it set up for an evening spot and sitting it as soon as I set it up. I mean, that's, that's been my biggest thing. And it keeps coming back to that is, is just that first sit, mm-hmm. you know, by the time they smell your boot tracks from when you were hanging that stand, they're already in bow range and your arrows in, in flight. Man, that's gotta be such a fun style hunting just to, you know, be able to move like that and, I'm kind of jealous that the way I'm so passive on my piece, you know, but just like being on public this year, I was way more aggressive than I was. Mm-hmm. I am normally, you know what I mean? And it's just such a, like if I seen a buck, if I was on my piece hunting a stand and I seen a buck do a certain thing, there's no way I'd pull that stand down and move it. Yeah. Like I yeah. just couldn't do it because I'm like, that's one deer, but on public, I'm like, well, if I don't do it, some other guy's going to do it and ruin him. <laughs> yeah. So I might as well go full send. Right. So, and that's, that's the other thing that that's kind of in your favor too on public is, is that, that attitude too there that, man, if I don't play aggressively to try to kill this deer, if you see a nice deer, if I don't, you know, try to kind of hurry up and figure him out and make a, a hard play and try to kill him that first hit, then either somebody else is going to kill him. Somebody else is going to walk around over there and put scent there and spook him off. I mean, there's so many other factors that it's hard to be passed, you know, cause I, I'd hate to, to be sitting in my observation stand for a week and on day number four, watch somebody else put an arrow through that deer and drag him right by my stand. I mean, that's, that's not going to be a good feeling. No, that'd be tragic. <laughs> so, well, man, before we wrap this one up, I want you to give a two-word answer. Your favorite place to hunt, and what animal are you hunting? Ooh. I'm going to say Montana. And I just, I don't I don't think I could say anything but whitetail deer. I'd still... Solid, bro. Else is, is, it's a passion of mine, but Man, if it wasn't for for bow hunting whitetail deer, I don't know what the heck I'd do. Jose, you're pretty damn good at it. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that's probably not a not a real adventurous answer there, but I would I would say the same thing probably. <laughs> yeah. It's just something that I like to do, and if I couldn't do it, I don't know what I don't know what I would do with all my free time. Just podcast yeah. more. Yeah, just podcast more <laughs> about hunting, which would make that makes a ton of sense. <laughs> I'd have to start of uh, uh like. Some, dad on the side podcast yeah dad on the side podcast we're already gonna start that <laughs> yeah. yeah there you go maybe we could get a, a men's knitting crew going or heck yes yeah knitting in the timber <laughs> <laughs> knit some sweaters for all those guys that hunt too much yeah, yeah. there you go you had to you had to sew the old tree real tree yeah camo perfect um all right justin I, um let uh, the listeners know where they can be able to watch some of your hunts at and um anywhere that they can follow you and and keep along and keep up with your season yeah, as these guys said, they definitely didn't butcher my name. So Justin Fiskajon is my personal Facebook account. Uh, I'm a pro staff member for Sick for the Hunt. You can also find them on Facebook. We do have some videos for Sick for the Hunt on YouTube. Um, 
And I think there's still some on Facebook as well. I know Facebook's starting to kind of crack down on some of the hunting stuff. And mm-hmm. That was one of the big reasons why uh, we decided to to go to national television. So starting July 1st, we'll have uh, Sick for the Hunt. Uh, it's with their main sponsor, Pure Whitetail. Uh, so it's going to be called Pure Whitetail Sick for the Hunt. We'll start airing on the Sportsman's Channel or the Pursuit Channel, excuse me. And that'll begin July 1st. And our, our episodes are currently slated to start Monday at 8.30 Eastern, Tuesday at 12.30 p.m. Eastern, and Wednesday at 12.30 p.m. Eastern. So that's the Sportsman's Channel. I keep saying the Sportsman's Channel, but that's definitely not right. <laughs> <laughs> it's the Pursuit Channel. I keep thinking of this meme this this buddy of mine made about April Fool's joke and how he was going to be on the Sportsman's Channel now. but <laughs> No, I, I mess up my words all the time, man. Yeah, you're doing terrific yeah. compared to what I do on this show. <laughs> yeah, if you're looking for us on the Sportsman's Channel and you don't find us and you're really upset, that's all on me because <laughs> we're actually on the Pursuit Channel, and that'll start July 1st. And I don't know quite yet what the uh, show lineup's going to be, but we have we have some incredible footage from all the members of the of the team. Um, we got a little bit of everything too. I mean, the cool thing about the sick pro staff is it's not all just guys in the same area. Mm-hmm. I mean, me and a buddy of mine, my buddies from, I got a couple guys on the team from Montana. I'm from North Dakota. We got guys in Iowa, Ohio, Pennsylvania, Missouri. I mean, we got a really good, uh, diverse group of guys and gals that, that hunt everything from turkeys to alligators to hogs to, you know, antelope, elk, bear. I mean, we, we literally have something for everybody. And the other cool aspect that I think is, you know, you got guys like me that are more focused on on public land hunting and, and opportunities that the average guy can, you know, go out and do like I'm hunting land that anybody can go hunt. Um, so I'm not anything special. It's just, I like doing it and I get out and I like sharing that with everybody too. So I think I can relate to a lot of people that there's not many shows on the outdoor channels that, that guys can relate to because they don't have the private land and the food plots and, you know, everything else. I mean, I just, shoot, I just go out and whatever's public, I start poking around until I find something that looks good and throw up a tree stand. So, I mean, I'm nothing special. And, you know, we also have guys that, that do have a, a ton of private land and they can put in the food plots and the baits and, and stuff like that. So we got a pretty good diverse of, of guys as far as where they're located and how they hunt. And I think that's going to really be a big plus for us to appeal to a, a huge array of audience members. I mean, I think it's going to be pretty cool. Yeah, I'm excited to see your stuff on Pursuit Channel. It's going to be pretty epic. Mm-hmm. You guys and, got uh, some straight killers on there too, man. Yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah. There's a, there's several guys on the staff that, that make me look like chopped liver. I mean, <laughs> I, I am nowhere near being the top dog. I just, like I said, I've, it's been something I've done for a long time and I never really did it with the intent of, you know, getting to this point. I just did it cause I enjoyed it and I enjoyed sharing my hunts with people who wanted to see them. And I never really put in a, an effort or sent videos out to, to a bunch of TV shows or hunting pro staffs. I mean, it was just Josh knows guys, you know, Josh Martin, the owner of sick for the hunt. He, he's been up hunting in this area several times. And, you know, uh, between all the people that we knew mutually, they kind of, 
got us together and Josh offered me a position and yeah, I mean, I was very humbled to, to get that and dude's just been doing my best uh, ever since to try to not let him down. So, yeah, but it's a lot of fun. It's a great group of guys and uh, doing it for the right reasons. I mean, you know, we always put God first and, you know, try to not be the type of people that come off as arrogant. I mean, I hope I never come off that way cause I'm the furthest from it. And I've always been scared to, you know, to do any sort of self promotion because I, I never want anybody to think that I'm arrogant. You know, I, I know I've had, you know, pretty good success and I've killed some nice animals, but it's nothing that I want to ever have somebody think that I, I think I'm better than anyone else. Cause I'm, like I said, average Joe. I just like going out and hunting and having a good time. And if I'm successful, that's awesome. If not, Hey, I got to see a beautiful sunrise, sunset, whatever it was. And it beats the heck out of a day at work. So that's for yeah. sure, man. I think that's a perfect way to end this, man. You're just like us, a couple of normal guys trying to get it done. And, uh, I really like that you said, you know, you can, you can target the normal people that are not going to outfitter or not, you know, cause there's a lot of, tv shows that are outfitter based and uh they're cool to watch but to a certain point you there you need something different and i, I think you're going to hit that and i'm excited to, to follow you from now on i'm following you on facebook now so i get to follow you throughout the season and uh, get to follow you on six for hunt though yeah well i'll be following you guys as well and hopefully this is the uh the first of many podcasts we can do together because i had a good time and i think we covered some pretty cool topics yeah i think there's a lot of good knowledge in this episode so we appreciate you coming on man yeah i appreciate you guys having me what do you think about justin biscuit john man i i think we could have a whole nother podcast of knowledge from him um i love how we went over a lot of uh, a lot of tactics in this and then showcase the story on how it's effective for him Anybody that's going to hunt out of state, um, this is a definitely episode that you could, I, I'm probably going to listen to it twice just to try to absorb it. And uh, one thing I really, really like it, you know, he, he was humble throughout the whole thing. Um, and I feel like that's some kind of sometimes lost when people become uber successful like he has. Mm-hmm. And then I also like uh, how he was like, he, it's another one of those episodes where you get into and the guy's killing big deer on just pure work. You know, he's not, he's not paying to go to an outfitter. He's not doing anything. It's just a normal guy purely getting it done on work. Well, and that seems to be the common thread, you know, as, as we talk to more and more people who are like Justin or, you know, Josh Prophet or James Wheeler, you know, the, the studs who are getting it done, and, you know, two of them guys that I just named are getting it done on public ground. Um, it just goes back to work, you know, running yep. cams and really sitting down and strategizing and, you know, thinking about your access and stuff like that. So that's something that we, we've gotten better at is, you know, access just from listening to these guys talk. So yep. um, we hope you guys pick up a skill from this episode. Uh, we know that we want to try some of the stuff out. Yeah. And uh, it's definitely a, a unique episode and a lot of whitetail knowledge. So, um, remember, get out there, um, try a different tactic. Yeah. And uh, try to leave a legacy, and whitetail legacy's out.